You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted to have you along for the next hour as we take a statewide tour of the arts. This week we will be zipping around Missouri again, visiting with four artists who are the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists for the month of June. We're off to Springfield to talk with a choreographer, Eureka to chat with a photographer, Pleasant Hill to meet a glass artist, and Afton to have a natter with a classical guitarist. It's a full show, so here we go. The great American songstress and civil rights activist Nina Simone said, You can't help it. An artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. It is a quote which is on the homepage of choreographer, dancer and educator Azaria Rian Hogans, whose choreography focuses on social awareness and the critical issues of gender and racial equality. Azaria is an assistant professor at Missouri State University in the Department of Theatre and Dance. Plus, she's a board member for an online digital dance company called NoBox. She writes extensively about dance for a variety of publications, and she is the co-host of a dance podcast called Dance Behind the Screen, which explores the influence of social media on dance. And I am so delighted that Azaria is joining me this morning. Good morning, Azaria. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with that Nina Simone quote about using your artist platform to reflect the times. The times in which we live are so complicated and fraught and polarized and we seesaw between hope and despair. So as a creator, how do you not get overwhelmed by all this need for reflection? Uh, well, I think reflection is necessary. I, it's not an overwhelming process. It's overwhelming when I don't process in this way. So I think it is more of a necessity for me. Um, some people write, some people march, and the way that I process and move through is by making dances. Well, tell me a little bit about the social awareness works that you create. Yeah, so one of my master's thesis projects was Chapters, The Process of Healing, which was about the experience of Black women in America. And for me, I wanted to tell a more contemporary story, one that wasn't dated. And we, we see a lot of the like civil rights time frame and reflecting there, but we still have these issues and feelings and things that bubble up now. So I'm, I was interested in the contemporary voice and how I processed and my experience and uh, the dancers that I was working with, their experience during that time. So there was different sections, um, kind of taking through the chapters or the stages of different experiences, whether a spiritual one, solo, by yourself, or one that was one of my favorite dances that's also an excerpt is called Greenhouse, which is about the softness of Black women um, that we don't get to see very often since we have all of these stereotypes about the strong Black woman and usually that strongness is taken and twisted to mean 
lack of feeling. Um, so for me, the contemporary way to deal with that was to deal with the softness. And the poem was by Nuria Wahid, which was Black Women Breathe Flowers Too. When you write a dance, choreograph a dance, are you in it? Or do you prefer to be on the sidelines creating and watching other people? It depends. It depends. Um, so I have definitely choreographed works on myself. Um, and I, if I'm choreographing something on myself, it's usually just me performing. So when I choreograph, it's usually a solo for myself, but I'm doing a larger group work. I usually like to be outside of it so that I can be more objective and see in more clearly. You wear all these hats. You are a dancer, a choreographer, an educator, an artist scholar. Where does your heart beat the loudest? Oh man, that is that is such a good question. And I've I've thought about <laughs> this for myself too. I think it often revolves, but I think something that it's always been like a little triangle. Um I'm a visual person, so the top two tiers is definitely dance making, choreography, and education. I definitely have a teacher's heart. I always have. That's extremely important to me. And this dance making is vital. Um, performance, I would say, is the like tip of the triangle, which is very much a part and important, but maybe is a little lower for me under the performance and the education. No matter the art form, the world of the arts for all its belief and its sense of inclusion and open-mindedness, has forever failed Black and Brown artists, dismissing their contributions from the canon and omitting their stories. But a cause to better teach a richer and more diverse history. Today's teachers themselves need to know that history. And as you found out, that largely comes down to your own research because it's not out there in the existing text. So talk to me about the work you are doing to resurrect the contributions of those historic black and brown dancers. Well, that was beautifully stated. And thank you for that acknowledgement. Um, That also means a lot. For me, some of the ways that I've been going about that in the education standpoint is being able to teach dance history. I teach technique classes as well as theory classes. So in 2019, before COVID hit, I was teaching dance history and I did it from an African-American diasporic perspective. So I thought that was a way that I could contribute and kind of go back for myself and teach the lessons that I wish I had been taught but then also go about it in a way where everyone can find an entryway. I think that's something that's so beautiful when we actually dig into marginalized groups. It's not about um, just them. When you can go down, you can help your students, no matter what their background is, to find more about themselves and to open up pathways to where they like, oh, can realize my voice also matters in acknowledging these other forms. So education-wise, I definitely have gone through that route. I've written articles that have dealt with this and also trying to bring awareness to this information has always been out there. Um, Their names might not be loudly sung and the research might not be extensive, but you might have to dig a little bit deeper, but it is there. And I hope to be a part of being able to resurrect those names and those dancers. And then through my work as well as just being honest to myself and that experience that hopefully I can um, 
give everyone else an opportunity to really delve deep into Sorry, I'm a dancer, not always a speaker. <laughs> Into their own history, their own <laughs> Into stories. Into their own history, yes. I'm over here using my body language like you can <laughs> see me. <laughs> I read an article you wrote for danceteacher.com and you named eight black, indigenous and people of color choreographers that students should know. And one of the artists you included was the experimental choreographer Blondell Cummings and her spellbinding work Chicken Soup and I had not seen that before and I must admit at this point I feel a little obsessed with it can you I've watched it multiple (laughs) times can you talk a little bit about that work and how it influenced you yeah so with the chicken noodle soup for the soul I have not been able to see it live Um, Blondell Cummings was beyond my time and unfortunately I've only been able to see some clips online here and there, but I do try to show it in my class when I'm teaching that dance history because I think a lot of times when it comes to experimental dance and postmodern dance, there are a lot of white faces that come to mind or that are on the forefront of the dance history books. And I think that she did such a brilliant way of playing with experimentalism as well as delving deep into the experiences of being a Black person in America. So that's one of the things that I think I really appreciated about Blondell's when I discovered her, um, and I wanted to really include her in that article because I think it's easy for people to highlight when Black and brown people fit into a certain narrative which all narratives are beautiful, but I I really love to see the ones where it kind of breaks the mold of where people think black and brown people belong. One of your contemporaries, the experimental choreographer Miguel Gutierrez, wrote about the tension between white modern dance and black modern dance, centered around the fact that abstract dance is dominated by white artists. Abstraction feels like it should belong to everybody. Why does it not? Oh, you are getting really deep. I love this conversation. (laughs) So I think one of the, hmm, let me go about this in a way that I can keep everyone's ears open. Um, So with abstraction, it comes with a certain level of being able to be misinterpreted or allowing for people to interpret in different ways. And I think that Sometimes a lot of black and brown and marginalized people don't have that room and their stories sometimes need to be stated a little bit more explicitly. Whereas if you already have your needs met and you feel seen as a person and maybe don't need um, to go about maybe, I don't want to say proving yourself or like proving your existence in a certain way, I think it gives you the space to really push the boundaries and try things that are new without having or caring about repercussions. So I think that is one reason I think that abstraction has more comfortably fit within uh, what we, I don't even want to just say the white canon of dance because it's for everyone. But I do think there has been an easier time when you're not still trying to prove your humanity or prove your rights or 
have your voice heard, you have to be much more clear, I think, when it comes to making work in that way. Whereas abstraction, it gives you room to let people do what they want. And there's been plenty of African-American and people of color who've worked in this way. But like Blondell Cummings, I think she did a beautiful job and a brilliant way of being able to play in both. Are you hopeful that we are on the cusp of change, real change? I'm always hopeful. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm definitely the optimist. So my answer is always yes. And even as things um, get messy and we're having really hard conversations and maybe are being more polarized as a nation, I'm definitely hopeful. Um, they always say it's the darkest before the dawn and we can't move forward to real change if we don't have real conversations. Well, I mean, I'm glad that it's changing, but I'm not black and I feel duped by it. I feel like I've missed out on right. a ton of things that would make my life more knowledgeable, my history knowledge better, my understanding of my empathy better by having heard different stories. Right. And I think that's what people get confused is thinking that teaching about other people will mean that their history is a race. And it's that's not the case. It's just going to make everybody understanding more full and rich. Right. Final question. You get to dance a duet with any dancer alive today or from the past. Who are you dancing with and what are you dancing to? Oh, my gosh. That is such a hard question because I just had like <laughs> 10 different people jump into my head at once. Hmm. You can have a couple, let's see. Okay, you know, so the, the, first, the first two, I would love to dance with Josephine Baker. That would, that would make my entire world. But I think even beyond her, Maya Angelou, a lot of people don't realize that she was a dancer. And then this way I could dance to her poetry. I have choreographed a dance to one of her um, poems, Still I Rise. So we would dance to her spoken word. Beautiful. Dancer, choreographer and educator Azaria Rianne Hogans can be found at Missouri State University in the Department of Theatre and Dance. And you can also find out more about her on her website, AzariaRianneHogans.com. Azaria, what a delight to chat with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Despite how ridiculously easy it is to take photographs these days, I do not take many. I don't own a camera and my phone is always in my bag or in another room, so most moments remain unrecorded. But when I do take photographs, nearly always in multiples because digital, the process of looking back through them and deciding which one to keep and which to delete is almost paralyzing. And I always wonder how professionals who have tens or hundreds of shots of one particular moment decide what makes the cut. Photographer Greg Holden has been making those decisions since 1971, long before the digital age, and he describes himself as an artist, photographer, inquisitive observer, and thankful human being. And he is my guest this morning. Good morning, Greg. How are you? I am well and delighted to get the chance to chat with you this morning. Good to be here. So the photography world has changed immeasurably since you were beseeching the adults in your life to give you a paying job so you could buy Polaroid film. What do you miss from those earlier, simpler photography times? Uh, just being younger and simpler myself. I, I guess 
what I miss is just a simplicity of looking through a viewfinder and snapping a, a trigger, basically, and waiting for the film to develop in my hand. It just was simpler. Either you had the shot or you did not. And every shot cost money, so it was a little bit more, you had to be a bit more exact. Right. You did not hold your finger down on the on the shutter <laughs> button and just hope for the best. Well, tell us how you got interested in photography. Well, in 1971, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and I was sitting in a hospital bed. And a friend of the family had brought in a pile of Time Life magazines. Uh, so I was going through, I was paging through them, and I saw a photograph by a photographer called Larry Burroughs, and it was called Reaching Out. And I looked at that photograph, and it, it just, for some reason, I didn't feel as sorry for myself. You really need to see the photograph. I, I don't do justice trying to describe it. I didn't feel so bad about poor me being a poor diabetic with at least a shot a day. That was terrible. But here's a man who's covered with mud reaching to help another man. And I, I at that point, I realized photography was possibly more than just showing things. It was not just documentary. I guess I, at 10 years old, I recognized it as an art form. And was that an instant decision? You thought, this is what I'm going to do with my life, or this is what I'm going to do this summer? Oh, I just thought it was what I was going to do for the summer. Um, so I, once I, I got out of the hospital, I started picking my neighbor's flowers and then walking around to their front door and selling it back to them. And they were all very nice and paid me two, three pennies apiece. <laughs> and so thinking back to those early photography days, what caught your eye as a young photographer? Where were your interests? In the natural world, I like to, I like to for lack of a better word, document what I could find in a creek or in a field or watching a, a, an insect. And that still kind of carries on to this day. Now, in, in the meantime, I've, I have four sons. So then I went to be a family photographer and I uh, lots of uh, shoe boxes under beds and in closets full of photos. Uh, but then after, after the boys were all grown and on their own, I really got back into the, into the art form of photography. So today you use a Nikon digital camera, but how do you feel about the digital photography age? I, I, I'm a little different than a lot of photographers. I do not use Photoshop. I do not fault anybody for using Photoshop. It's a wonderful tool. I would never tell a painter what brush to use. I would not tell an artist what pencil or any kind of a tool to use. It's a tool. It's not a tool I choose to use. I try to get the photograph in camera, like the film days. Of course, you can dodge and burn film. You can make adjustments while you're developing film. And I do generally add contrast. Camera sensors do not see the way our eyes see. And I always add contrast because a human eye will pick up more contrast than a camera sensor. Do you have a darkroom? Do you still use film at all for any of your photography? No, I do not. I, I have a film camera, an old Nikon FE, but I'd be afraid to try to put film in it because I don't know if I'd ever get the film back out. <laughs> Well, you are almost exclusively a wildlife photographer. So tell us about a couple of moments of ooh, photography transcendence when you were out with your cameras. 
Well, I love to photograph from a kayak. And this might sound silly, but there has been a time or two when I have been able to feel like I connected with a great blue heron. Uh, great blue heron, you know, I've learned how to approach herons and egrets and get close enough to get an interesting photograph without scaring them or modifying their behavior. And there was a couple times where a, a blue heron would be preening and I would drift in and the bird would look at me but continue on preening. Then, you know, when, when you do that, yeah, I like to say, well, I'm part bird. Well, not quite, but um, when you can get that close and the animal looks at you and you know it is not in fear, that's when I know I've done something right. I mean, how close are you at this point? I've been within 15 feet and with a 600 millimeter lens, that's just a little too close. I have had to actually paddle back to get the shot. I kayak with a 600-millimeter lens, which might sound really kind of ignorant, but the only thing that's ever gone overboard is a lens hood. And $51 later, I said, I will tape this to the lens. <laughs> I think we count that as a success. Only one lens cap. Yes, yes. So when you go out in, into the natural world in your kayak or with your hiking boots on, I mean, there's such an overwhelming amount that you could photograph. Do you have a, a guiding philosophy of your photography, of, of what you're hoping to get and what you don't photograph? What I hope to get is what people don't normally see. What I hope to photograph is something that maybe I've seen it, or maybe I haven't. But what I want to photograph is something I can share with others whether that would be a dragonfly or a, an eagle launching out of a nest or the first flight of a, of a young eagle or a hummingbird uh, at one eight thousandths of a second freeze frame. Those are images that a lot of people don't have the opportunity nor the time. Now, that's one thing I do want to point out. I do have the time to pursue photography. A lot of people do not have the time. And I, I don't want to waste it. I don't want to waste that time. I want to make everything I can, the best I can do, so that I can, I can share what I find. Which of your works gets the most attention from customers? Uh, birds. I would say mainly birds. You know, for a long time, I did not consider, well, I didn't consider photography the art form that it is. I have done shows, and I always thought, what is a crowd pleaser? What can I do to sell? Well, one, uh, one busy Saturday, my sister was helping me in the booth. It was at a Queenie art show, and the place was packed, and I was doing fairly well. And a, a woman came in from the aisle, and she kind of rudely came through the crowd and went to an image on a, that was hanging on the back wall. And she put her hands on each side of it and stood back, started crying, turned around and ran out of the booth and ran down the aisle. And I followed her and she ran out of the building. So I came back and I asked my sister, what happened? She said, I don't know what happened. I said, I hope I didn't offend her. But it was busy and I kind of forgot and went on with talking to people about photography. 
the show closes at four o'clock on Sunday. So a quarter to four, a man came in and I figured, okay, it's time to do some dealing because sometimes you get customers that come back at the end of the show and they want to talk prices and possibly knock you down a little bit. Somebody says, okay, you have 80 on that. I'll give you 70. I say, I'll take 90. So it's, <laughs> it's just kind of fun. Well, I was actually starting to take things down and the man came in and said, good, that's still up. My wife wants to apologize. And I said, is she okay? And he said, yeah, she's a, she thinks she really put on a scene yesterday. I said, yeah, she, she left. I don't understand. Did I, did I hurt her feelings? Did I, what did I do? He said, you did nothing. You touched her. She wants this photo. I said, well, what, how did this, I don't understand. He said, our, we lost our son three months ago. Hmm. And she saw your photo. And she didn't know what to do. She wants it, but she didn't know how to tell you. And all she could do was cry, and she left. And I said, well, sir, then I want to give your wife this photo. I don't want any money for it because she is. She has connected with this photo more than I did, and I took the photo. So it is now hers, and I do not want any money for this photo. Please bring it to her. And he said, no, I'm actually going to pay you more than what you have on this. Because if you can help anybody the way you've helped us, then you need to be here doing this. And what was the photograph of? It was a Canadian geese don't generally get into tall vegetation because they like to see the area around them. But this was a photograph of an adult goose with a neck curved and the baby, the little yellow baby's head was right inside the curve under the neck. And they were surrounded by some tall vegetation. And it was, you know, I took the photo because I thought, well, this is, I've never seen a goose do this. They're hiding in tall vegetation. I've never seen this. And I liked it. But when that man came in and he he told me the story and I saw the impact because I started crying, the man started crying. The two artists on either side of me and across the aisle came over and we were all basically crying in the in the booth. And then I realized the art form that photography really can be. And, you know, I would love to catch a photo like that that could help somebody, not to sell it to them, because I do. I give photos to people. If a person comes into the booth and they they actually, I can see they've connected, I don't need money for that photo. The connection is the is the payment. Right. Right. It's It's theirs. I just found it to give it to them. Now, don't get me wrong. The man, you know, the man gave me twice what I had marked on the on there, and I tried to talk him down. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Quit being an idiot," and I said, "Okay, sir." <laughs> How often does that happen that you try and beat the customer down on price who wants to pay more for it? That is such a beautiful story. At least once a show, I have somebody come in and they connect like that with a photograph. And usually more than once. And I'm not really that much of a sucker. I can tell when I'm being played. <laughs> but I also don't ever, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm truthful when I say if somebody connects with a photograph that I have taken and I have paid to have put on a metal print or I have printed or built the frame, it's theirs. All I did was bring it to them. I can't charge them for that. It's theirs. 
And I, I, I sincerely believe that. Do you have any photography bucket list items, places you'd like to go or certain birds you'd like to find? I would like to go photograph grizzly bears catching salmon. I would like to do that That's uh, as a type 1 diabetic with some lingering situations these days. It may not be possible, but I'm going to look into it. I will definitely look into it. Well, I hope you get there. You can browse Greg's extensive collection of nature images at gjholden.com. And if you want to see the mama goose and her gosling image, I have posted it on the Speaking of the Arts Facebook page. Greg Holden... Thank you so very much for sharing your photography world with us this morning. Well, thank you, ma'am. When our old dog died five years ago and the veterinary hospital asked us if we wanted to have him privately cremated, I said no, because then what would I do with his ashes? I didn't see a memorial urn in our future and I wasn't sure where I'd want to leave him in the garden. But in the end, some ashes did turn up and they've sat on my bookshelf ever since. But my next guest this morning maybe has a solution for me. Barb Byrne is a fused glass artist and one of her specialties is memorial glass. Good morning, Barb, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and thank you for having me. Well, there is no way around it. We have to start with the memorial glass before we delve more into your history with glass. Tell me how you got started with memorial glass. Well, my dad passed away about 10 years ago, and we all got little urns with his ashes in it. So I had a little bit of my dad sitting on my shelf in my living room and didn't quite know what to do with it, but I just kept it. And then about two years ago, my mom passed away. And I thought, well, this would be really nice if I could memorialize both of them since I had ashes from both of them. So I, since I was doing glass work anyway, I did a little research on how to incorporate cremains into fused glass, and I made some little hearts with glass with cremains from mom and from dad, and then I fused a picture of them from their wedding day, and I put it on top of a memorial box, and now that's where I keep my special things that I have from mom and dad. And it made me feel so good to be able to do that and to memorialize them in that way and to have them still with me. So I decided that maybe it would be helpful for other people who were going through the grieving process if I offered them the opportunity to let me work with the ashes of their loved ones and memorialize them in that way. And I immediately had a reaction from one of my good friends whose mom had just passed away and they were having a memorial service for her mom about a month out. And they commissioned me to make a piece for everyone in the family for their memorial service. And that's what got me started. Had you read about it somewhere or was this just an idea that you had? I mean, do other people do it? Yes, a lot of other people do it. As a matter of fact, another glass blower friend of mine is heavily into it. And he works with an online group, uh, a group of artists that do it. And he told me about it. And he suggested that if I was interested, I might want to start doing it myself. And I did a little bit of research about it because he was a glass blower. So blowing glass is different from fusing glass. 
And so I had to experiment a little bit with how to make it happen and have the piece turn out to be beautiful and the way I wanted it to turn out. I mean, these are pieces that you are doing on commission. People are asking for them. I mean, is it, I don't know how many you've done. Are people always happy with the results or do they say, oh, actually, now I wanted it a bit pinker or (laughs) because it's a bit late, isn't it, by then? Yes. Once it's done, it's done. But I have not had anyone be disappointed with what they have gotten. Most everyone has been very happy with it. And I think part of it is because they know this is something that they will have with them forever. And the finished look is not always um, the thing that makes them feel good, I think. I think it's more the fact that the cremains are there and they're preserved and they don't have to worry about what they're going to do with the ashes anymore. Now now it's a piece that they can have forever. I think most of us have kind of an emotional squeamishness about death. So when you tell people generally, what what is their reaction? Are they slightly horrified or or intrigued or or immediately send you some ashes? I think probably intrigued, but the lead time between when somebody considers it and when they actually ask me to do it is quite long. Hmm. I think people have to sit with it for a long time. Most people will approach me almost immediately after the passing of their loved one to get information about it. But it takes them a long time to um, to actually commit to having me make it. And because there is an emotional component to it. Right. Are you mostly working with deceased loved ones or pets? I've done more with deceased loved ones than I have done with pets, but I do both. Huh. I was thinking it was going to be the other way around. I mean, it's an incredible responsibility working with somebody's remains. What Do you have any special rituals or preparations you do before you start work on a memorial glass piece? Yes, I do. I actually have sage and I actually sage my work area and my studio before I work on anybody's ashes. And then I you know, do a little uh, of my own meditation before I do it so that I feel like I'm connecting with that person and with their loved ones before I actually do the work. Tell us a little bit about what kind of memorial glass artworks you create. I do jewelry pendants, mostly butterflies and dragonflies. Those are are the most popular. I also do paperweights that are in the shape of hearts. I do um, heart pendants. And then for pets, I have a pet paw mold that I do uh, to put the cremains in a pet paw and it's jewelry. Um, But there are a number of things I can do. I I have done hummingbirds. I have done cardinals. I usually, whatever people want want me to do, I have on my website, I have samples of a lot of things that I have done, but I don't hesitate to talk to somebody about something special that they may want. Have you had any unusual requests? Not really. The most unusual one I guess I had was the cardinal. Before, I, I wasn't able to make cardinals and somebody wanted a cardinal and she settled on a hummingbird. But as I mentioned earlier, people take a long time to actually decide that they're going to do it. 
So by the time she made the decision that she actually wanted to do it, I actually did have a cardinal mold and I was able to make a cardinal for her. So presumably people know not to send you the entire cremains of Great Auntie Harriet or the 120 pound Great Dane, <laughs> but I mean, how much do you need? And, and then what do you do with any ashes that are not used? I ask them to send me a half of a teaspoon. That's all I need. And I have, I provide little vials for them to put it in, to measure in. And then I ask them if they want me to return the unused ashes when I have finished the piece, or if they want me to scatter them in a private, peaceful place here in Kansas City. And, and then I honor that request. Most people request that I scatter it rather than return it to them. Half a teaspoon is a, a very, a very tiny amount. Yes. So you mostly use glass powder to create your artworks. Tell us a little bit more about your, your general process for the artworks that don't necessarily contain cremains. Yeah, my passion is doing glass powder pieces. Um, I lived on a farm in mid-Missouri for about 20 years. We lived on 300 acres and I was just very, very connected to nature. So when I started doing, and this was before I actually started working on glass, I've only been doing glass work since about 2009. And, and that was after we moved to the Kansas City area. Um, but I brought a lot of my feelings and love about nature and animals with me. So when I started doing glass work, I really didn't want to cut out glass pieces. That didn't make my heart sing. So what I did was I started getting pictures of animals that spoke to me. And there were a couple of websites where you can go and get pictures that photographers have taken that they let artists use to create artwork. So I went to those websites and I found a few pieces or photos rather of animals that actually spoke to me. And I started creating layers of powder on the glass to create the image. So I start with a piece of clear glass and I outline the animal figure, and then I start layering glass on it in different shades and colors to get the outline of the animal, to get the eyes, nose, and mouth. That's usually what I do first. And then I fire it in the kiln, bring it back to my workstation, and then do another layer. And it could take anywhere from a minimum of five to a maximum of 15 firings before I get the piece to look the way I want it to look. So it's absolutely a labor of love and it's certainly time consuming, but I just love the look of it. And sometimes I add dimension and texture to it. Sometimes I fuse it so that it's totally flat and it looks more like a photograph than it does an art piece or a glass piece. But yeah, I vary it depending on how I happen to be feeling about that particular animal. Do you have to fire each color separately or is it just kind of layer by layer? It's just layer by layer. Um, I do multiple colors per layer. And with glass, it's different than with painting because what the firing ends up looking like is not what the powder looks like when you put it on. So I have a, an entire set of samples that show me what a particular color is going to look like when it's fired. And there are not an unlimited number of colors. And whereas a painter can mix colors on their palette before they put it on their canvas so they know what the color is going to look like, I don't have that luxury. 
So if I am looking for a color that I don't normally have, I have to do several mixes and run tests in my kiln to, to fire those mixes to see what the color is. And sometimes it takes me a long time to reach the color that I'm actually looking for. Uh, but then I keep those mixes in separate containers and I know exactly how I mixed them so that when I need to use them again, I have them already mixed. So backing up a little, your background is in writing real estate textbooks, <laughs> right? And online course content for real estate schools. How did that morph into being a glass artist? Well, actually, I'm still a real estate writing, so <laughs> I haven't totally morphed. I've done lots of art and craft over my lifetime. I started out making my own clothes when I was in high school and then moved into fiber arts. And then I did basket weaving and then I did board carving and painting. And I always had a love of glass, but I didn't have any opportunity to get involved in it. And when we moved to Kansas City, I noticed in one of the community centers, they were offering a fused glass class. And I thought, oh, I will take this. So I took it and I worked um, in their studio at the, at the community center for about six months and then decided this was something I really wanted to continue to do. So my husband allowed me to buy my first kiln and I brought everything home and started doing it in my house. And then he built me a studio in the loft of our home. So now I have a full studio over 500 square feet and a second kiln. Yeah, I mean, becoming a glass artist isn't like just nipping down to Michael's and getting a paintbrush and some paper and deciding you're going to take up watercolor painting. I mean, it's a pretty big investment. <laughs> you, yes, you have it to, is. <laughs> you have to pull the trigger at some point and say, okay, I'm going to buy yes. that kiln. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, my first one, I told my husband, I'm going to sell jewelry. And when I have sold enough jewelry that I can pay cash for my first kiln, that's when I'll buy it. And so my husband said, okay, fine. And he told my daughter and he and my daughter went to the bank and opened up a bank account and put the first $200 in it <laughs> to get me started because they knew it was going to take me a long time to make enough money to buy a kiln. And how long did it take you? Um, probably about six months. That's not too bad. No, it really wasn't. <laughs> I, I, can't, I cannot complain. They might have snuck a few extra dollars in there every now and again. <laughs> and emailed all your friends and told them to buy your, buy your jewelry. Exactly, exactly. Well, you can see Barb Burns Glassworks on her website at barbburnglass.com. And that's burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. And you can also find links to her work through the Summit Art Gallery in Lee's Summit. Barb Byrne, thank you so much for sharing your art with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I played piano for a couple of years when I was a child, but gave it up because I only just scraped a pass in an exam. And then as an adult, I took up the harp, but then I went traveling and I sold my harp. Plus, a competition judge had pointedly told me in front of a room full of other contestants that the tempo description rubato, Miss Moxon, was not the same as playing out of time. I clearly lacked both fortitude, patience, and also a decent sense of timing. So I have always envied people who do have the determination and patience to master an instrument. Professional guitarist Patrick Rafferty is one such musician who likely flew past the alleged 10,000 hours it takes to master a skill many years ago. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. It's good to be here. 
So you are a teacher as well as a performer. So you must see students grapple with the same issues I had of just not having the patience to put the hours in to be the performer they wish they could be. How do you get them past that? Oh, wow. Um, I would say there's a different answer for every student. <laughs> and I wouldn't. I would say that they don't all get past that. That's probably true. <laughs> Well, I mean, you've been playing guitar since fourth grade. So I'm curious whether, obviously, you've had those moments of being on the verge of packing it all in and how you got yourself over that hurdle. I still deal with that hurdle all the time. I think um, experience comes into play in a lot of cases. Having solved similar problems in different pieces, you start to compile a bit of a catalog of solutions to problems and um, it's all about trying to always get a different perspective on the problem so you can find that new path. You chose guitar when you were in fourth grade. Did you grow up in a musical family? Why, why did you choose guitar at such a young age? You know, I just, uh, I always wanted to play guitar when I was little. I can remember begging my mom to get me a guitar. And she said that, no, I needed to take piano first. <laughs> so I learned a few, took piano for a few years and it was okay. But the whole time I, I just really wanted to play guitar. I, I don't have a clear recollection as to why that would have been, but that was certainly the case. And why classical acoustic guitar? Or is that something you've come to later in life? Yeah. So I, I grew up in Southeast Missouri. So my awareness of guitar music was firmly rooted in rock and roll blues and country styles. Um, it wasn't until I got more into my like late teens that I started to experience what the classical guitar has to offer. And that would be the ability to, to perform pieces as a soloist without having to rely on an accompanist or, or band members. The style is really built for solo performance and in my opinion, it's it's the most rewarding style to play, and it has the, the most varied amount of repertoire to play as well. Do you remember hearing a classical guitarist or that moment when you discovered that it existed as a, as a genre? Yeah, of course. I, I can remember when I was younger listening to Segovia and John Williams, because I always had guitar magazines. I would always bike down to the grocery store and buy these guitar magazines, and they would always have like a small section dedicated to classical guitar, but it was always written out in notation. So I wasn't able to really deal with it because I couldn't read notation at the time, but I would always read the articles and I would listen to the recordings. And it was, it was mind blowing. It was like so far outside of my uh, comfort zone that it wasn't really approachable at that point. Well, you got both your Master of Music and Graduate Performance Diploma from the Peabody Institute at John Hopkins University, and you were voted the top graduate performer by your peers. You were also only the third guitarist in over 60 years to win a top prize in the Artist Presentation Society auditions in St. Louis back in 2011. And today you are a professional guitarist playing solo and ensemble recitals, as well as serving on the guitar faculty at Southeast Missouri State and St. Louis University and teaching privately. So with such a storied career, what are some of the high points that really make your heart resonate the most? <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I've had a lot. There are a lot of performances that I think back on, especially um, in grad school, because that was such a 
challenging setting to be in with so many other great players and musicians. There are a lot of experiences during grad school that I think went a long ways towards shaping the career arc I've been on since then. But gosh, that's like 12 years ago at this point. So a lot has happened since then. And um, I don't know, I can't really single out any single one. I, I guess just the experience of being able to continue to to do performances and, and to play and to actually made it into something at this point is the most rewarding part of it. How has the past year been for you with no performances? <laughs> Horrible. I'm fortunate to, you know, I have two little boys and, and I'm married to my wife, Jill, and we've been fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time together during that time. And I certainly have kept up playing, but um, I, I sorely miss having performances to prepare for. And it's great to finally have some things kind of on the books at this point. So I can start moving back towards that direction, I guess. As a guitar player, a solo guitar player, then probably you're back on the stage before people that play wind instruments or people that play in bands or anything. I mean, there's just you not blowing any, any aerosols with your guitar. (laughs) So it might be a little easier. Yeah, I think so. Um, to this point, my experience has been that even though it seems like we're, we're kind of on the downside of all this, it's still really slow going for a lot of these organizations to kind of get the wheels turning again and, and identify funding and then start scheduling seasons. So the ball is just barely starting to roll. Well, at least that's been my perspective. To your point, though, yeah, it is true. I think that guitarists are easy to schedule because all we really need is a chair and we're not uh, we're not going to be breathing on anybody. (laughs) (laughs) So you write that as a performer, you aim for the singular experience. What do you mean by that? So I I think of the the performance experience as as something that can really only be experienced when you're in a face to face setting with the performer and my goal is that when people leave they feel like they've gotten something that they couldn't have gotten anywhere else i know we all listen to recordings now and you can watch anybody you want play on youtube now but those are a far cry from actually having to sit in a chair and be quiet Mm. (laughs) and listen to the live music experience, which is far more powerful than either of those other two options. And um, I, I just think it's a really special uh, relationship that you can have with an audience. Uh, there's not really anything that comes close, musically speaking. And then you kind of take it a step further and consider that when you're hearing a live classical guitarist, there's there's nothing to filter that sound. You're not playing through any mics or your or amplifiers or anything. It's strictly coming straight out of the instrument right into your ears. So you couldn't ask for a more direct reception, I guess. Well, let's have a little musical interlude here, even though we're not face to face, and listen to you play a recording. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to listen to and why you chose this piece. Well, I uh, I'm going to be playing the opening of Asturias. It is actually originally written for piano, but I think it's safe to say it's the most famous piece of solo classical guitar music there is out there. It's written by Isaac Albanez. 
And um, this is just something that's in my current repertoire, and I recorded it for you about an hour and a half ago. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> hopefully it's uh, up to par. Is this your own arrangement? This is my own arrangement, yes. Perfect. Here we go. Here's Patrick Rafferty playing his own arrangement of Astorias. Rafferty playing Asturias. I'm always curious about what the hot issues are within a particular art form or genre, things that only people who are actively involved in that genre know about. So tell me what occupies the best minds in the world of classical guitar? You know, at this point, being that we've all been on lockdown for the last year, I mean, there's no question that it's how to get back to where we were a year, year and a half ago when there was a very vibrant classical guitar scene across pretty much all the major cities in the U.S. And there were a number of performance opportunities. So so that would be the hot issue. I guess kind of coming up close to that is dealing with repertoire, like all classical music. We're trying to find some middle ground between all of the pillars of the repertoire, which have all been written in the past, and trying to keep it current by also making uh, contemporary music or giving contemporary music a voice. Those are the two big things to my mind. I have a question from my husband, who is a guitar player too. He was wondering about tab. So in the guitar world, there are two ways of reading music. Standard notation, where the notes sit on lines, and we learnt those at school, the mnemonics for what note sits on which line. And then there's tab, where the stave has an extra line, and each line represents a string, and the notes represent both the fret number and the fingering. And he wondered, is tab considered a bit lowbrow, a bit rock and roll? Do you teach that, or do you teach classical notation? So um, I most often rely on standard notation, but tab is very popular with guitar music, mostly because for on the guitar, every note occurs in like six different places on the fretboard. So becoming fluent reading notation is time consuming. It's, it's not something anyone's going to achieve in six months. It's a year's type of thing. 
I'm not opposed to tab, especially for beginners, because it gives them a quick way to locate a pitch on the fretboard. But I always try to tie that into standard notation simply because standard notation includes far more information. Most obviously, it has rhythmic values included in it. And that's like the tip of the iceberg. It's just, you know, the this debate has been going on a long time. <laughs> right. It's it's not <laughs> it's not surprising that tab is popular. The the downside to it is it doesn't include as much information as standard notation would. It's interesting, though, because like if you think about the earliest music written for plucked string instruments, most of that actually occurs in more of a tab format. And I'm speaking of music during the Renaissance period. I don't think there was anything that was tabbed out more than lute music. There's just massive amounts of it. And um, their form of notation was very much based in tab. So final question, what, where, or who is on your guitar playing bucket list? Piece of music you want to master, a venue you want to play in, a duet or ensemble you'd love to be part of, maybe all three. What's your, like, your dream gig? Wow, I guess I have to say, like, uh, Carnegie Hall, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's the dream gig. You know, I have this vision that what I would really like to do is be able to play for really large audiences through some kind of amplified system where uh, sound quality isn't lost, but I can actually reach audiences like a rock guitarist can reach an audience. (laughs) I don't think that's ever going to happen. Never say never, Patrick. We just have that, that one drawback with classical guitar of just the fact that we're just not very loud. Okay, Carnegie Hall, here you come. You can find out more about guitarist Patrick Rafferty and listen to his music at patrickraffertyguitar.com. Patrick, thank you so much for taking time to chat this morning. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, choreographer Azaria Rianne Hogans, photographer Greg Holden, glass artist Barb Byrne, and classical guitarist Patrick Rafferty. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri! Bye.